In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. This is the prologue to the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses. And over the next two weeks, this is going to be our text as we try to unravel the mysteries of this passage. You get the impression when you read it right off the bat that this is important. There's something profound being shared by John here about Jesus. Some of it comes to the surface immediately. Some of it's easy to grab a hold of, but some of it's a little bit of a challenge. Some of the imagery maybe doesn't make sense right away because it's anchored in places that we have yet to explore. But our goal over the next two weeks is to take what John says in these 18 verses and make as much sense out of it as we can because it's important. It's important for us to understand what John is saying about Jesus in the beginning here because it sets the stage for everything we're going to learn about Jesus as we go throughout the rest of this book. And so I invite you on this journey with me as we try to do our best to understand what John is saying about Jesus right here in the beginning. And this morning we're going to focus on two different things that John says about Jesus. Just two elements, but we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive. And I want to tell you off, off the bat here that one of my goals for us in this study, for all of us, is that you are enticed into deeper Bible study by what we do on Sunday morning. My hope is that your only engagement in the book of John doesn't come during these 30 to 40 minutes each week on Sunday morning, that you are, are taking time on your own throughout the week to dive a little bit deeper, take the things that we're learning as we barely scratch the surface on some of this stuff, and use it as a catalyst for your own Bible study throughout the week. You know, Jason touched on something this week that made me think about this, and I want to know more about it. And if you've got questions, let's talk. And if you want resources, come and see me. But I hope that, like I said, you will be encouraged by these lessons to dig a little bit deeper into the scripture. And so let's do that together this morning. I want to thank uh, Skeeter for his song leading this morning. Uh, grateful for all the men that do that for us. I don't know if everybody knows, but uh, Skeeter's getting ready to retire here in just a couple weeks. And so 
Um, we, are, uh, we are excited for that. Uh, what are you going to do with yourself? Okay, she's got a list. Okay, all right. What he's really going to do, he told me this morning, you know what he's going to do? He's going to spend all week practicing the songs so that just the voice of an angel emanates out of the stage as he leads us every Sunday morning. Uh, we're excited for you, Skeeter, and grateful for you, uh, truly. Before we even get into the text, I want to share something with you guys. I don't, uh, I usually work from home on Wednesday mornings. I don't usually come into the building. The school district has an early release day, and it's just not a lot of time to get a lot done here, so I work from home. This past Sunday, however, I uh, had something I really needed to get done here at the office, and so I came in to find the church was kind of a, a, a hive of activity. There's, you know, the usual voices, and I love as I'm studying in the morning to hear all the voices of the little ones as their parents take them in to the preschool next door. I love that sound. There was that going on. Uh, Alicia had a lot to do. We kind of piled a lot on her that day, and so she was doing all the stuff that Alicia does, but if you don't understand it, to just know that she holds everything together, we should all be very grateful for the work Alicia does, but she was busy that morning. Uh, Aaron and Michael were both busy that morning. There was stuff going on. There was a ladies' class here in the fellowship hall that was taking place. There was a Bible study happening just outside our doors of the conference table, which resulted in a new sister in Christ. Praise God for that. Uh, I remember seeing Milton and Lois come in so they could watch the kids for the ladies that were here for Bible study. There was just all this stuff going on. And I just share that with you because... There's a difference between just being busy for busyness sake and being busy about kingdom work. And as I saw what was going on, I was so happy to see the church busy about the work of the kingdom. And it makes me so excited to be in a place where stuff is going on. Not just for the sake of being busy, but because kingdom work is being done, the gospel is being spread, people are being encouraged, and the kingdom is growing. And so I was really excited. I drove home Wednesday a little overwhelmed, uh, trying to get everything done, but just with a smile on my face the whole way home, uh, realizing that God's work is being done here. And I'm grateful to every one of you for serving in the kingdom the way that you do. Okay, let's get into the text. In the beginning, let's start there. Seems like a good place to start. In the beginning. In the beginning, what does it mean? And why does John start there? Where does the story of Jesus really actually begin. If you survey the other three Gospels, remember last week we talked about how there's four Gospels, three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we refer to as the synoptics because they're very similar, and then there's John. So if you survey the synoptics and where they begin, if you look at Matthew, for example, Matthew 1 in verse 1, he begins his Gospel like this, this is the genealogy of Jesus. So he's going to trace the lineage of Jesus back. That was important because for him to claim the title of Messiah, he needed to have a certain lineage, a certain genealogy that fulfilled all those promises that God had made to his people. And so he begins there. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he traces Jesus all the way back to whom? To Abraham. Because Abraham was the one to whom God had originally made that covenant promise to. And so Matthew right off the bat is telling us, listen, I'm going to start with Abraham because that's where the promise begins. And that's where he goes. You look at Mark. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 reads like this. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And so 
Mark takes us back to the prophets as God talks about the coming of the Messiah. And I think Mark does this because for him, this is where the story of Jesus begins. It's anchored in those promises God had made to his people through the prophets. And so he takes us back to Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who's he talking about there? John the Baptist, right? All three of them, all four Gospels talk about John the Baptist. Who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so that's where Mark begins his Gospel. You get to Luke. Now Luke also has a genealogy like Matthew. But what's interesting is Luke doesn't include it until chapter 3 of his Gospel. Where he begins is here in verse 1. Luke chapter 1 in the first five verses. Luke is very much a historian. And that comes through in what he says in the beginning. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Who's the us? The Christian community. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He's a historian. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? The guy he wrote this to. That's all we know. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And then he goes on, he says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. And he introduces us to the preaching of John and then to the birth of, or excuse me, the birth of John, the birth of Jesus. He unfolds all of that, right? And so Matthew and, Mark, or Matthew and Luke both kind of focus in on the birth of Jesus is the place where the story of Jesus begins. But then we get to John, and John does something very surprising. He says, in the beginning. Well, where does the story of Jesus really begin? Does it begin at his birth? Yeah, but before that. Does it begin through his genealogies and the promises made by God through the prophets? Yes, but even before that. Does it begin with Abraham and the promise God made to Abraham? Yes, but even before that. Does it begin with Adam? Because that's where Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Does it begin with the first human being on this planet? Yes, but it begins even before that. It begins in the beginning. And so this is how John starts his gospel, in the beginning. John is taking us back to another place in Scripture. For most of you, I think, if I say the words and I said, okay, I'm going to start a passage, I want you to finish it for me. And I said, in the beginning, where would your mind go? You would finish it by saying, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens in the earth. Because this is how the whole story of Scripture begins. The very first verse in our Bible is, in the beginning. How did everything come into being? How did all of this begin? Where does the story begin? Well, it doesn't start with the origin of God because there is no such thing. It starts with the origin of us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, John's got a Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. It's the scriptures that the Israelites knew. It's the scriptures that the early church used. And the Bible that John is using is the Greek translation of those Hebrew scriptures. And when he starts to write the story of Jesus, he uses the exact same words that his Bible started with in the beginning. Because he wants us to go back to Genesis chapter 1. He is placing Jesus firmly in that story, the story of creation. Where does the story of Jesus begin? It begins here with the Father at creation. And so John, quoting from Genesis 1, begins that passage. But then instead of saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What was he doing there with God in the beginning? He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things that were were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I keep tripping up on my words because I've committed this in the ESV to memory, and now I'm preaching out of the NIV, and the wording's a little backwards. Okay, this is what he says. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Nothing has come into existence unless it came into existence through the creative work of the Word. And the Word was there with God in the beginning, and the Word was God in the beginning. So where does the story of Jesus begin? In the beginning, at creation. In other words, Jesus is not part of God's creation. Jesus is the force behind creation. And this is a fundamental part of the way that John frames the story of Jesus. And like I talked about last week, if we're going to, as I want us to throughout this study, continually ask the question, who is Jesus? The question first in our minds has to be, well, where did he come from? Where did he begin? Well, there's no beginning to Jesus, and he didn't come from anywhere. He's there with the Father in the beginning because he's part of the Father. He was with God, and he was God. This idea runs throughout John's gospel, and he records several times where Jesus is talking about this about himself. The idea that he wants people to understand that he was part of God from the beginning. And so he says things like this in John chapter 8, starting in verse 56. This is a scandalous thing that he says to the Jews at the time, and it resulted in them picking up stones and trying to kill him. Because in their mind, what he says is blasphemous. He says this, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. But then he goes on and he says, and he did see it, and he was glad. And they ask him a question, well, okay, Abraham lived a long time ago. How is it that you think Abraham saw you? So they say, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? It's impossible. What you're saying is ridiculous. But this is his response. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born... What does he say? I am. Not I was, I am. Now he he uses that phrase on purpose because he's connecting himself with whom when he does that? With God the Father, the great I am. I've been here from the beginning. I was here before Abraham was here. And so he makes a statement that to them is blasphemous, but he's doing what John is doing at the beginning. He's connecting himself back to the beginning. Jesus is timeless and he is eternal because he is one with the Father. Here's another place in John chapter 17, verses 4 through 5. We're going to reference this chapter twice this morning. What some people call the the high priestly prayer when Jesus, the night in which he was going to be betrayed, before he heads to the garden to be arrested, knowing what's going to unfold in his life, with the weight of all of that personal agony on his shoulders. He goes to God in prayer, but his prayer isn't for himself. It's for those he loves on earth. And he says this, amongst other things. He says, I have brought you glory on earth. He's talking to the Father. By finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you for how long? Before the world began. So I just want you to see, as we enter into the story of Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle John, what does he want us to understand more than anything about Jesus? Well, he takes us there in his first few words, in the beginning. He wants us to understand that Jesus 
is eternal because he is one with the Father. Where does the story of Jesus begin? Not at his birth, not at the promises, not in any scriptural context in the Old Testament, but in the beginning. Here's the other thing I want us to think about this morning, is the word. The word. What does that mean? Because here's what John does that's really interesting. In the beginning was, he doesn't call Jesus by name. He doesn't say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That's what he means. That's what he's saying, but that's not the words that he uses. He uses this phrase to refer to Jesus, this, this term that's almost a title, a descriptive title for whom Jesus was. And so he doesn't say Jesus by name. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the question we have to ask is, why does John do this? Why does he begin the story of Jesus not calling Jesus by name, but instead using this descriptive title? Why the Word, and what does it tell us about Jesus? And this is a very interesting thing to think about, and there's honestly, there's a whole lot of things that we could uncover about this phrase, but I'm just going to try to introduce you to a couple of them this morning so that you can think about these things. Number one, I want you to think about what the word does. And primarily, the word creates. It's, again, John connecting Jesus back to creation. And here's what I mean when I say the word creates. If you go back again to Genesis chapter 1, since that's where John himself took us to. And by the way, let me just point this out. One of the things John is telling us right off the bat about how he wants us to read this story is that he is interacting with Scripture. Over and over and over again, John is taking us back to other places in Scripture. And so if we're going to understand John and his purpose and his intent and his imagery, we've got to be willing to be students of all Scripture and chase down those places that John is taking us to so that we know what he's talking about. Okay, so he's already set the stage for us. He wants our minds to be in Genesis chapter 1. So think about the Word. What was the word doing in Genesis chapter 1? God said, Genesis 1 verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. Over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, as the author there walks us through the six days of creation, we find this phrase repeated as we're introduced to the subsequent days and the various things that God is doing in creation during those days. They're all introduced with the same phrase. And God said, let there be light. Now, we talk about this a lot as Christians, right? We talk about the creative power of God and how God did what? He spoke creation into existence. You've heard that phrase before? You've heard people talk about that in the pulpit before? You've been a part of Bible studies where you've had that conversation in awe of God because God the Creator simply spoke creation into existence. In other words, it was the Word of God that was responsible for creation. It was God's words that ushered in creation. When he says the words, let there be light, what happened? There was light. God's word is responsible for creation. And what John is doing is he's associating Jesus with that word. That word becomes personified in the person of Jesus. It's not just vocabulary, but it's Jesus himself is that word responsible for creation. And so as you think about why did John use the term the word, as he's referring to Jesus, instead of calling him by name, this is the first thing he's doing. He's taking us back to Genesis 1 and again, forcing us to think about what Jesus had to do with creation. As God speaks creation into existence, it's Jesus that is the force behind that creative work. 
But also, what does the word do? The word communicates. And I want us to think about three different ways that God communicates to us, his creation. He has, and he is, and he will communicate to us in these three different ways. Number one, through creation itself. Number two, he communicates to us through scripture, right? In fact, what is one way we refer to this? We call it what? The Bible, scripture, also the word of God. Okay, so that when I say, open up the word of God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm referring to scripture, right? It's one of our favorite ways of describing the word of God. So he communicates to us through scripture, but then he also communicates to us through the word, which is something different entirely. So what, what do I mean by all that? Okay, well, let's walk through it for just a second. Number one, okay, God creates through, or communicates through creation. Think about that for just a minute. Romans chapter one and verse 20, the apostle Paul talks about this. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. We can't see God, but we can see what he created. And through what he created, we see those parts of God that would otherwise be invisible. So he says his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So that... Not just those of us who already have faith in God, but the rest of the world who doesn't are without excuse because when you witness creation in all its splendor, in all its glory, what do we see? We see the handiwork of the Creator. And we learn something about God through the nature of creation itself. So God communicates to us through creation. Have you had those moments in your own life where you felt like God was saying something very powerful to you through creation? Have you ever seen something so beautiful that the only place your mind can go in that moment is to God and his creative power? I know, I, I hope you have. I'm sure many of you have. I can close my eyes and picture moments like that. I can remember the first time we drove through Tunnel View and came out the other side to see the Yosemite Valley spread out before us. How many of you have been to Yosemite? You know that scene I'm talking about? What happens the first time you see it? I mean, we've all seen the iconic images, right? Ansel Adams made that famous for us. The pictures themselves are beautiful. I've got some if you want to see them. But there's nothing like seeing it yourself for the first time. And I can remember the first time I saw it, and I thought, man, God was just showing off when he made this. I mean, it's stunning, right? I can remember going to Machu Picchu and having kind of the same experience. I can remember one time, I think it was our first trip we took to Peru probably, I don't know, 15 or 16 years ago. My brother Josh and I led a group of students from Fried Hardeman down to Lima, Peru. And we did a, a bunch of work in Lima, especially with kids. And on the last day, we took a day off, and there were some people that were a part of the church that uh, worked with kind of a, a tour company. And so they put us on a, a big bus, and they drove us south from Lima towards this little set of islands that is kind of like a mini Galapagos, and I was super excited to see it. Well, as fate would have it, a fog rolled in, and we never got to actually see them, but halfway back, the bus, bu bus broke down, and so we're on the side of the road, and I don't know how to describe the scenery there except to imagine that you are on the surface of the moon. It is a nothingness, nothingness like you've never experienced before, just nothing in any direction except this highway that is straight as an arrow. We're heading north back to Lima, Peru. And I know the ocean is off to the left of us somewhere, but the buses broke down and we're waiting a long time and um, there's no potty. 
right? And so there are sand dunes. And so I'm going to the top of the sand dunes to find a, a, a private place. And I get to the top of this dune, and all of a sudden my jaw drops because, unbeknownst to me, the coast was right there the whole time. And I look, and you, you guys been to Big Sur before? You know how beautiful Big Sur is? Imagine Big Sur, like, exaggerated. This is what that coast of Peru looked like. And I couldn't believe it. And I kind of whistled down to my brother, and we brought everybody up there, and we just sang for like 30 minutes as the guy got the bus working again. Because it's the only thing we could do, was give praise to God in that moment, because his creation was speaking to us so powerfully. So the first way God speaks to everyone on this planet is through his creation. He is saying something about himself to us through what he has created and the way that we interact with that creation. But also, he speaks to us through his word, through his actual word, the words that he says to us. And we have those recorded for us today through scripture. And so we think about it primarily through the medium of scripture but let me just show you what happens in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4, and I'm going to show you three different verses. Verse 4, verse 14, verse 25. What's happening in Acts chapter 8? Well, Paul has begun a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Those Christians are scattering outside Jerusalem. They're taking the word with them, and they're preaching in places like Samaria. And so it starts off, it says, those who had been scattered preached what? The word. What do we know he means when he says the word? The word of whom exactly? The word of God, right? He, he's communicating God's will to other people when he's preaching the word. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. The word of God, what is it a reference to? God's communication to us. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, and then it goes on to talk about the gospel. All of this just to show you there's this way that the word is used as a term throughout Scripture that references Scripture itself. God actually communicating verbally to humanity. Now, how did he do that? Well, he did it through the authors of Scripture. He did it through those who recorded those through whom God spoke. Think about the prophets. What was their role in Israel? Was to do what? Share the word of God to the people of Israel, right? God spoke through them, and what they proclaimed was his word. So we talk about the word and the way God communicates to us. What we mean a lot of times is scripture, because at least I hope you do. When you open up scripture and read it, I hope you understand that God is communicating to you through scripture. But then there's this third way God communicates to us, and it's through the word. But not the word like this, the word as in Jesus, the word. And I don't know if you've ever taken time to think about this, but I want to encourage you to do it this morning. God is communicating to us through Jesus. In fact, it is the most powerful way that God has ever communicated to us, is through Jesus. And I want to make this point for just a minute because I think we sometimes lose sight of this. Does Scripture lead us to Jesus, or does Jesus lead us to Scripture? Yes. But primarily, Scripture leads us to Jesus, because we are called to have a relationship with God through Jesus. Okay? Do we worship Scripture, or do we worship Jesus? Okay. We can elevate Scripture above Jesus sometimes, and we should not do that. Okay. Scripture 
illuminates God for us. But Scripture ultimately points to Jesus, who is the perfect illumination of God. The best way God has communicated to us, the most powerful way, the most clear way God has communicated to us is through Jesus, His Son. You look at Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn over there. Colossians chapter 1. And listen to what Paul says here in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. John's going to make this same point himself in just a minute. We'll get back to it. The firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he's the firstborn of creation. He's not saying he's the first thing God created was Jesus. No, listen to what he says. Things in heaven and things on earth uh, were all created through him. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God was pleased that God's fullness might dwell in Jesus. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. Look also at Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Hebrew author is making the same point. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We already talked about this. What was the role of the prophets? To communicate God's word to the people of Israel. But the prophets weren't just historical figures. They were also the authors of scripture. And so he's referencing the prophets as people, but also scripture that prophets produced. God communicated to us in the past. How? Through the Bible, through scripture, through the prophets, in various ways. But in these last days, he says, he has spoken to us By his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. It's the same stuff John's talking about. The Son, now listen to this. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So in other words, you you take what John says, you take what the... The author of Hebrews says, you take what Paul says in Colossians, what are they all trying to get across to us? That Jesus is communicating God to us. We are learning about God through what we see in the person of Jesus. God is communicated to us in different ways, through creation, through scripture, but the ultimate way God communicates to us is by sending his son, because his son is the exact imprint of, of the nature of the Father, and we learn something about him through that. Now, this is what John is saying in two verses I'll point you to in this prologue specifically. Number one in verse 14, this is kind of the climax of the whole thing. The main point of everything John is trying to get across to us. The Word became what? Flesh. How did God communicate to us through the Word by sending the Word to take on flesh so that he becomes like us? Now we get to see in the humanity of Jesus, what the divinity of the Father actually looks like. What better way for God to communicate to us than to do it on our own terms? By taking on flesh and illustrating in his body what God looks like and what he wants from us. 
the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. I mentioned this in a lesson a couple months ago, but I'll do it again. One of these things you can take a deeper dive into. The terminology or the phrase that John uses there is literally he pitched his tent among us. He set up his tabernacle among us. And again, I just want to point out that John is very careful in his choice of vocabulary. He's using words that are heavy with meaning to make us think about things that Scripture says in other places. What is he making us think about here? How did God make his dwelling among the children of Israel? Through what? Through the tabernacle? And then through what? Through the temple. This is what Jesus is. He is a tabernacle. He is a temple. But it's better than that temple built out of stone. It's built out of human flesh. And Jesus becomes a temple of God. The full dwelling place of God occurred in Jesus in the flesh. And he says, we have seen his glory. Here's another term that we should pay attention to. Another word carefully chosen by John to make us think about something more deeply. You guys remember that series we did when I first started here from Exodus chapters 32 through 34 when the Israelites do what? Make the golden calf and God wants to destroy them and start over with Moses and Moses intercedes on their behalf and they get the Ten Commandments all over again. Remember that, that story? Okay. One of the things that happens in Exodus chapter 33, the very end of that chapter is, if you'll remember the story, Moses makes a request of God. Anybody remember what it was? He wants to see what? God's glory. And I would encourage you, this is one of those things you can do on your own to take a deeper dive here. Do some study into the term glory in the Hebrew scriptures and how it's used to refer to the manifestation of God's presence among his people. Moses wants to see God's glory. You remember what God did? He granted his request, but only to an extent. He says, I'll let you see me, but you can't see my face. And you remember what he did? He hid him in the cleft of the rock and then let him see him as he passed by. What a crazy story, right? Trying to wrap your mind around what all of that means. But just to say that, that there's something about the glory of God that we can see kind of, but not all the way. Even Moses, when he got to see God's glory on the mountain, came down and had to do what? Put a veil over his face. Something changed about his actual countenance because he had been in the presence of God. Glory, that term is all wrapped up in all of that imagery that we know from those stories in the Hebrew scripture about the presence of God being made manifest among his people. John uses that word on purpose because this is how he wants us to think about Jesus. What did Jesus do when he took on flesh? He brought the glory of God down here among us. So we get to see it. We get to interact with it. We talked about John last week, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who did what? Leaned back against the bosom of the Savior, right? Gets to be in this intimate proximity to God. It's no longer take your shoes off or the place you're standing is holy ground or keep the children of Israel at the base of the mountain. They can't come near. It's not that anymore. It's Jesus touching people breaking through that barrier between us and the holy glory of God so that we can be one with him. All of that is wrapped up in this imagery, and it's powerful and it's awesome, and I hope you'll do some study on your own. But he says, we have seen his glory. God has shown himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're introduced to something else here, this imagery of Father and Son. And we'll talk about this more when we get to John chapter 3, but just something to think about for now. Why does Jesus use this of himself, and why does John use it? This idea that the relationship between the Word and God the Father is one of Father and Son. And I would just encourage you to know 
that he's not illustrating a relationship of biology here. This is not a biological relationship he's talking about. It is an intimate relationship. It's an illustration of intimacy. He's trying to get us to think about how close Jesus is with the Father. I am a lot of things to a lot of people. And one day when I'm dead and gone and people talk about me, they, they'll be able to talk about me as a husband, you know, as a son, as a brother, as a friend, as a, a minister of the gospel, whatever. You know, different ways that people have interacted with me. But there's only one person on this planet who will be able to talk about me as a father. And that's my daughter. And she can talk to me, and she can talk with me, and she can talk about me in a way that nobody else can because of the kind of relationship she has with me. And that's at the heart of what it means that Jesus is God's son. He is able to communicate to the Father and to us on behalf of the Father, and vice versa, in a way that no one else can because of that intimate relationship he has with the Father. You skip down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. He has communicated God to us. So that's what this word illustration is all about. How is it that Jesus is the word of God? It has everything to do with what the word does. Yes, the word creates, but the word also communicates. And Jesus is communicating to us the Father. What specifically? Well, more than anything else, it's the love that he has between himself and the Father. What is it that Jesus came to clearly illustrate to us? That God loves him and that God loves us. He's inviting us to participate in the relationship he has with the Father. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. What is Jesus really doing when he takes on flesh and comes to earth? He's showing us one thing above all. He's showing us the love of the Father. And he's inviting us into that love. Listen to this. John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Again, we're back to that high priestly prayer. And this is what Jesus says towards the end of that prayer. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's praying for his disciples after he leaves. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That, that's us, by the way. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the whole point of Jesus' ministry here on earth. To proclaim the love of the Father to his creation. To illustrate how powerful the love of God is through the way that God loves his Son and to invite us into that same relationship 
of love, where we're no longer outside observers of God loving his son, but we are active participants in that love, that we get to be one with the Father and the Son. And when we know that and we experience it and it changes us from within, what does Jesus say? He says, then the world will know who I am and that you sent me. Love is the climax of the gospel. We understand from what John is saying that Jesus is there at the beginning, that he's with God and that he is God and he's the, the, the force, the power behind creation. We understand that. We understand that he came to communicate God to us, but to what end and to what effect and for what purpose? Simply to show us who God is. That God is, what does John say in his epistles? Fill in the blank. God is, oh man, God is, starts, there you go, love. God is love. We see that through the person of Jesus and he invites us into that love that we can become participants in that story. So there's a not-so-brief introduction into just a couple of the words that John uses that are so pregnant with meaning. And I hope on your own this week you'll chase some of those things down even a little bit more. Next week we're going to continue through those first 18 verses because there's a couple more things to unravel. But what have we learned so far? We've learned that Jesus is eternal. We've learned that Jesus is God. We've learned that Jesus is also human because he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we've learned that above all else, Jesus came to communicate one thing more than anything else, the love of the Father to us. I hope that you experience that love as we go throughout this study. I hope that if you're not already one with the Father and the Son, that you'll be called to participate in that relationship with them. And I hope that this has made you hungry to know more about the Gospel of John. How can we serve you this morning as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, as you seek out a deeper relationship with the Father and the Son? How can we serve you this morning? I invite you to think about that question. Let's stand, let's sing this last song, and if there's anything we can do for you, come forward and let us know, won't you? Let's stand and sing. Bless the Lord, oh my Thank you.